Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, and I am joined today by Senior Business Reporter Rachel Sapin in Seattle. We've got time for just a few stories to dive down. It was a very, very busy week, and it was hard to drill down and, and choose what we were going to look at, um, except for one story, and that is the ongoing uh, American Seafoods U.S. Customs fight. Now, you can listen to past podcasts or go to our coverage if you want to learn more about the complexities of this issue, but I think kind of the basic thing to know about it is that uh, American Seafoods uh, had some shipping subsidiaries that were, uh, were accruing a lot of U.S. Customs fines for allegedly violating what's called the Jones Act. Again, if you want to get into it and nerd out and get uh, all up on it, best place to do that is either look at the past episodes of our podcast or go to our site. Anyway, American Seafoods has taken U.S. Customs to court, hoping to uh, get a restraining order on these fines, hoping to free up that product um, because it is causing all kinds of chaos. Uh, Rachel and I sat in on the arguments on the 17th, um, and the attorneys laid out their cases uh, from both the U.S. Customs side and the plaintiff's side. Um, Rachel, we'll, we'll, um, we'll send it over to you. So you are uh, our star reporter on this, along with John Fiorillo. You've been tracking it really closely. Um, let's just give it a, 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 quick, uh, a quick update for where we are right now and some of the things that have happened since we last talked about it. Yeah, so really what's happening is um, all of this product, this millions of dollars worth of product is uh, uh, just stuck in the facilities in Atlantic Canada. And uh, right now, lawyers for um, American Seafoods, the subsidiaries are basically trying to get um, some sort of injunction passed by a judge in Alaska that would kind of at least prevent future fines uh, from accruing. Uh, the lawyers, I think, as recently as September 17th, said those fines are over $400 million at this point. Um, so I'm not sure if they're just continuing to get fined by the CBP, uh, Customs and Border Protection, but it's not looking great for them. Um, and while we're having this uh, kind of hold up on of product, there's also this uh, issue with there just being tight Pollock inventory overall. So customers uh, such as one person I spoke with, the president of Channel Fish, are talking about how they aren't able to fulfill uh, really large USDA contracts uh, for, for school lunch programs for things like fish sticks <laughs> as a result of this very weird technical uh, American seafoods issue. So it's, it's crazy, <laughs> I guess, is where it's at. The the story about the the interview that you did with Channelfish was to me, yeah, the the irony of ironies that it would be a company that's supposed to supply the U.S. Department of Agriculture school lunch uh, program and other aid programs that that company cannot get the pollock it needs to produce that product because the U.S. government is uh, embroiled in a lawsuit um, that's actually keeping that product from getting there. It's, it's good to, uh, to point out that there are a, a lot of dogs in the fight here, correct? And so um, Channel Fish and, and um, 
the president was really uh, open about it. You know, Channel Fish just really wants that, uh, obviously wants American to prevail and that product to get to get to it. Um, what do we know, Rachel, just about um, some of the other uh, some of the other alternatives? Because there's plenty of the the other shippers uh, that have sort of um, been active in the case and pointed out that um, that there are ways to get the product there. Um, there, there. It, it's what do we know about getting product to the East Coast now? Um, what are what are companies going to do because it's substantially more expensive, correct? Or at least more more expensive. We know that. Yeah, I think you know you're hearing different things depending on which side of the debate a company is on. Um, but yeah, what I am hearing from people in the Alaska Pollock seafood world who um, get things to East Coast consumers other ways is that it does take a little more time to uh, get the product through. They kind of go out of a place in Dutch Harbor called City Dock, um, and it's not very nice looking. There's lots of mud. It's kind of an informal, not a well-structured dock is what I've heard about it. And then that gets transported to um to seattle and from there you have to get on a u.s rail line to go across the country and uh the the trip for the pollock is not done yet you still have to get from there it trucked to a cold storage facility um and one of the things i've heard about that right now that's tough is that because of covid everything is pretty filled up including cold storage facilities um and you know also uh, obviously in addition to shipping containers uh, a lot of rail cars and other distribution uh, services are just very busy right now. There's a lot of people that want to ship products, so it's not an easy route. Um, but, you know, I think one of the issues with American Seafoods using that as its primary argument right now is that they've been using this uh, tiny train model since 2012. So I think to make that argument really stick, they'd have to kind of prove you know, they haven't been able to use other methods since 2012. Um, so it'll be interesting to see kind of if they're able to do that. I thought the uh, the attorney for America, it was very clear um, this attorney had argued big cases before. It was very confident and very, um, very attorney-ish um, in, in, in making the case uh, for American seafoods. And, and one of the things that he really highlighted, and I don't know if this will... I don't know how this will play for the judge, but he harped several times on um, the sustainability, uh, the environmental footprint of getting the the pro using the 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 sort of workaround with the trains um, to to get it down to um, down to the uh, to to Maine and, and to the other uh, to to the companies are delivering to. Um, I'm just curious if you felt like that was going to sway anything or just kind of in your listening to the arguments, did you feel like there was any, anything different than we hadn't seen in the filings or any feeling from your part about whether or not their argument might, um, get through to the judge? I thought that was, um, I just haven't really heard of that as an argument before. Um, I don't know. I wasn't, they didn't really submit. I mean, I guess they did kind of submit how cumbersome it would be if they had to um, actually use the rail line in, uh, in New Brunswick versus uh, what they're using now with the tiny train. 
but you know, it's like over a hundred miles. They'd have to use the rail line, which I guess just uses more fuel. Um, I don't know. I wasn't quite sure that that was really related to what the issue was. Um, so for me, that that argument, though technically correct, um, seemed to be just kind of like throwing a bunch of things at the wall to see what would stick kind of uh, tactic. So I just wasn't quite sure about that. But that was just my feeling on it. No, it was mine too. I was surprised because they didn't really talk about it much in the filings. And it sort of was, I don't think it was central to what the, the, the attorney was arguing, but it, it came up quite a bit, which I thought was kind of interesting. So um, yeah, and it's kind of a hurry up and wait. Uh, we jumped the gun a little bit. There was a, a proposed filing um, that the Attorneys for American um, uh, lodged that essentially revised what they were hoping the judge would sign. Um, and it appeared that the judge had sided with uh, American. That was not the case. So um, we, uh, we, we looked uh, uh, into that and quickly updated the, um, the situation. And the situation is that it is just uh, purely in limbo right now. And we're coming on about, we're getting close to a month of this backlog. Um, and, you know, like you said, Rachel, I mean, their cold storage space and logistics and all of this stuff um, is massively complex. And it, um, it's only gotten worse. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. We are sitting here uh yeah refreshing the docket report uh in the uh in the alaska court system waiting for the next filing and seeing when judge gleason um makes her decision but i you know i don't envy her because um there's a lot of documents to go through there's a lot of complications and i imagine it's pretty tough when you have the u.s government on one side to really um carefully consider the the plaintiffs so um, so we'll see, we'll see. And I think more of it is going to be, um, about, about how, um, about how strong the, the prior cases were that were, um, kind of in favor of this, uh, this Bayside Railroad, but a lot of complexity. For me, the biggest place where these lawyers, I think really have their argument, um, is really just, yeah, how, um, kind of strange this Jones Act is and this, you know, the reason they built the railroad to begin with and, um, for me, that's always been the most compelling argument, really, mm. um, on their side is just kind of how, you know, they really aren't able to get product to uh, Maine in a in a way that, you know, the, the industry actually finds feasible and uh, efficient. And so I think that's one of their biggest arguments that I've seen from them that I think holds the most weight. Yeah, that's a really good point, because that was something that he brought up quite a bit, wasn't it? And I guess my view on that was the 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 trial this case isn't about the jones act and so i wonder if the judge will sort of see it as well this isn't you know this isn't we're not putting the jones act on trial we're putting their actions regarding the way the jones act stands on trial because i think most everybody could agree that it is it's pretty ridiculous to see that train car go back and forth. I mean, everybody agrees on that. I'm assuming <laughs> it's, just, it's like as existentially 
confusing. I don't yeah. know. It brings up a lot of bad emotions. It it just it just yeah. Yep. It's very bizarre <laughs> to see, and it's just yeah. You just kind of don't know what to feel about it when you see that. Yeah. But um, I don't know. We're still we're we're, we're still sorting through how Gonna all this came. Gonna need some therapy past. from that. I think. Yep. Add that to my therapy list. There yep. you go. Um, yeah. But anyway, sorry, I just had to add that in. I was just thinking, I know, and I that does make me think, like, do we need to, you know, it's the Jones Act, too, as well. I think it's just bringing up issues about that, and I really hope, separate from American, that we do get to address um, ways jo the Jones Act is really making things complicated for U.S. companies and somewhat unnecessary ways sometimes it seems like yeah agreed um so so just just before we move away from from Pollock and move on to some of our, our other topics one of which is going to be shipping um tell us a little bit about um, now it's it's not related it is quasi related but it isn't directly uh, a result but um tell us about what uh Nippon Suisun Kaisha's uh subsidiary Gorton's the largest uh, fish finger manufacturer in North America tell us about what they're doing they uh supply a massive chunk of McDonald's uh, fillet of fish production um which is made from deep skin Alaska pollock and they're they're actually going to shift things a little bit um as part of um, just these logistics challenges, right? Yeah, definitely not related at all to the American seafoods case, but um, yeah, they uh, kind of coincidentally have been working as well to open or actually, I guess, uh, update a new a plant here in Redmond, Washington, uh, a new processing line for uh, to do fish fillet for McDonald's um, on the West Coast um, in a, an existing Unice plant. So that is one way they might be able to, in the future, get around, you know, having issues reaching uh, the McDonald's plant they were formerly trying to access. It looks like in Wisconsin when it was uh, previously owned by Tyson. So yeah, that's kind of an interesting development. I think. Uh, a lot of these companies might try to have more processing on both the West and East Coast after this ordeal. It may make sense. And I think it's, um, you know, it, it fits right into the, the shipping coverage that we've been doing. Um, our sister company and friends and colleagues at uh, the publication Tradewinds, which covers uh, the shipping sector, um, better than anybody else. We've worked with them on some stories about what's happening with the shipping crisis and, and, you know, leveraging their expertise. We've learned a lot about how it's impacting the seafood sector. And I think these types of shifts of thinking about where you produce, uh, thinking about how you source your fish. I mean, it, it's just ramping up, uh, more and more and more. And I think, uh, that, that includes in Russia, Kind of figuring out how to skip China as much as possible. We've seen a lot of companies talking about that and making moves on that. Um, and then just in general, um, th this rise in cost just hammering everybody is upending things. So um, uh, Ian Lewis at Tradewinds and our colleague John Evans uh, have been uh, tracking this on uh, on a lot of different stories and, and a couple from this past week that were really interesting were um, one looking at just the chaotic spread of uh, prices for uh, shipping containers across the world because of this this continuing problem of containers being in the quote unquote wrong place. 
uh, containers needing to be replaced and just this overwhelming demand. So um, you've seen uh, spot rates for shipping containers just skyrocket. Um, and a lot of these market analysts are, are pointing to this and saying, you know, this, this can't, this can't, um, this isn't sustainable. And I think it's, um, although the global trade is at the, at the mercy of these shipping companies in, in many ways, um, it does appear that shipping companies are recognizing that costs have gotten a little bit out of control. Um, and so it was very interesting to see that a couple of the major, uh, shippers, um, including Hapag Lloyd, um, decided they were going to freeze rates and just straight up admitted that the, the prices have gone too high. Um, there, there's several examples. Spot rates from China to the U.S. West Coast, those are above $20,000. First time they've ever been at that rate. Uh, price from Asia to the U.S. East Coast hit an all-time high. Those are at over $22,000. Uh, per FEU is the terminology that's that's uh, uh, th that's used, um, and just in general, you're seeing all of this uh, all of this uh, additional costs and all this snarl. Uh, you have backlogs in Los Angeles, Long Beach. You've got you know backlogs in Asia. It's it's really um, it's it's really a, a tough time, and I don't know that. We as consumers uh, or seafood companies have really felt the full uh, pain of it uh, yet. And, um, and one thing that we've also reported on is companies um, taking matters into their own hands, which I think is going to be very interesting to watch. Um, Walmart, had, uh, Walmart, Ikea, Amazon, all of them have either been looking or uh, actively had uh, or actively have been chartering their own freight ships, so they, which I think is really interesting um, and certainly puts you a little bit less at the mercy of spot prices and, and certainly must make planning easier. Um, but an example of that too, uh, just um, our, our colleague Anders Faruset was in uh, the Faroe Islands uh, for Baca Frost's uh, Capital Markets uh, days uh, last week. And among the things that Baca Frost revealed that, uh, that Anders reported was that they are going to buy their own plane to fly salmon directly from the Faroe Islands to New York, which I just think is kind of an astonishing sign of the times. Um, now, one would think that flying uh, air cargo is not the way to go when you're looking at greenhouse gas emissions. Um, now, they have done some of their math on this, and according to Baca Frost, it's actually better for better than what they have been doing um, because prior, they've been shipping their product um, uh, from the Faroes to Heathrow uh, and then over to the States. And so you're, you're taking it. It's longer. It's more complicated. It's more expensive. And... According to them, according to their math, it is also um, it's uh, it's it's uh, worse for the environment. So they have calculated that by purchasing a uh, their own cargo plane, which they're hoping to get a seven fifty a Boeing seven fifty seven two hundred, which apparently is the largest aircraft that can land in the Faroe Islands, um, that that will be for it will cut emissions by forty to fifty percent from from the way that they do it right now which I think is really, really interesting. Um, 
and I'm a little bit, I would not be surprised if we start seeing this uh, more with companies kind of, um, you know, looking for, for ways to get around these uh, ridiculously ridiculous costs. Um, and in addition, maybe address some of the climate issues. Although again, you know, if you're flying product, you're, you're definitely, um, definitely going to be emitting a lot more than if you ship, but we just talked about shipping. We talked about what's happening on the, um, on ocean freight. So, um, climate change. All right. So while we're on that topic, Rachel, uh, a couple of stories that came out, um, this week on the East coast that I think are pretty concerning. Um, maybe you can start with, um, with cook since we sort of learned some new information about their August die off and their main operations. Um, and then let's talk about movie after that. But what did we learn about Cook this week and their big uh, die off in Maine in August? Yeah, we're just kind of learning that they had quite a few fish die off, um, around 100,000 salmon, um, according to the Maine Department of Environmental Protection. And yeah, like you mentioned again, that was due to low oxygen levels. Um, we certainly don't have so much information on Cook as we do on some of the things that have happened at movie, but it's kind of, you know, in the same area as where movie's been experiencing issues um, in, you know, the Atlantic waters um, for Cook, it's the U.S. in Maine. But yeah, we're following that case closely. And uh, sometime, I believe, end of this month, October, uh, the Maine Department of Environmental Protection is going to release a report um, on the incident um, per usual. We just don't have all the details on that one at that point, uh, at this point. Yeah. And I think we're, you know, it, it seems to me that we have, or it doesn't seem we have seen, uh, more and more of these climate related incidents, whether they're algal blooms or low dissolved oxygen or, uh, you know, uh, warmer waters causing uh, a higher prevalence of sea lice. Um, you know, we, we're going to see this more and all we have to do is, uh, look at the weather and you can see that it's getting more extreme. Uh, it's getting warmer in Northern climes. And, um, I think that, uh, I think that we're, we're probably, um, as, as companies begin to, uh, to discuss and think about, uh, risks, um, climate is clearly going to have to be one that they're going to, um, that they're going to need to, um, to, to think about how to mitigate. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to, uh, interesting to see what companies can do. There are different ways to aerate, uh, farms more and have skirts to, um, to, to do what they can to, to, uh, keep, um, to keep algal blooms from, um, from really doing too much damage. But, um, at some point, I think it, it's necessity will spur some, uh, you know, some some innovation and some um, inventions there on keeping fish, um, yeah, a little bit safer from that. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, our coverage of the uh, the Alaska Pollock, the salmon farming industry, shrimp, pelagics, politics, trade, you mentioned it, is on intrafish.com. Uh, subscribers, don't forget, you have alerts. So if you want to follow particular companies or topics, it's very easy to do. 
uh, you just go click on my alerts and choose what you want. And that way you're going to get news uh, as soon as we hit the publish button. Uh, it heads to your inbox. You get a head start above everybody else. And you can also find all kinds of newsletters to sign up uh, on our site as well to keep up with us. And then, of course, social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us there. So thanks, Rachel. And we will be back next week. <laughs>